Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. They have Nitin Pachicia of Unshackled Ventures, the third in our series, uh, profiling new and emerging venture funds. How's your day going? Great. How are you, Nathan? I'm good. So we've got a video on and you've got a whole wall of metals behind you. What's, what's that all about? <laughs> uh, that's, um, some of them are, are mine. Some of them are my kids. So we're all, we're an athlete family. I play cricket on the weekends. My kids play baseball, squash, and a bunch of other sports. So um, I, I was about to throw a bunch of them away because I'm not much of a collector, but my kids are. So now they're all up on the wall. Hey, if they earned them, as long as they're not just like participant medals, right? Uh, then I think yeah. we overdo medals in this country. For what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> probably true. Probably true. Awesome. Well, glad to have you here. Um, so tell us about Unshackled Ventures. Yeah, so we started uh, in about 2014. And I think you and I met right about that time. Uh, the Unshackled Ventures story kind of started in 2012 when I first started uh, my, my previous startup and spent six months talking to attorneys about uh, how should I go about transferring my visa from my previous employer, which was also a startup, but uh, a more progressed startup, to starting my own company. And uh, about two dozen people told me, no, don't do that because you're on a visa. And I was like, no, that's, that can't be true because so many immigrants have started companies and been successful. So I kept researching and eventually found the way that worked for me to start my company. The, the outcome was I, I ended up spending a lot of my time dealing with immigration and figuring out those pathways versus time that should have gone into working with my customers, building the product, shipping the product. Yeah. And so the, the, that journey coupled with my co-founder, my partner and co-founder Manan's journey of, as a U.S. citizen, um, child of immigrants, but he grew up here in Saratoga and um, started a company with a visa holding co-founder. And same thing, right? This here you have an American citizen who's spending a ton of time and slowing down because of uh, just someone being on a visa. So we we kind of said like this, this is not right, right? There's there's a big opportunity to um, really accelerate the success of immigrant founders and there was a framework in our, in our minds that uh, could work without depending on the policy change. And that became Unshackled Ventures in 2014. So we, we uh, took six months to do customer discovery and go out and talk to entrepreneurs, talk to investors and see if there's an appetite for the framework that we were proposing. And, you know, fortunately for us, we were overwhelmed with the positive response. Um, when you have um, very um, experienced uh, angels, especially Indian angels, uh, willing to put money in your company. Uh, and a lot of entrepreneurs lining up to say, you know, this is what I was waiting for. Uh, you guys are doing something meaningful. It's going to save me so much time. That was mm -hmm. our cue that this needs to exist. So, so we started in 2014 with a very simple, um, objective of accelerating or helping immigrant founders succeed faster. 
Uh, we truly believe that the founders we're backing will succeed anyways, with or without us, but we can speed up their journey. And the way we do it is by taking over immigration for them and some of the some of the things that are very unique when you are not from here so mm -hmm. if you look at the typical um immigrant uh comes to the country through the school system or the corporate system as a young adult or adult right they they don't have deep networks that they grew up in so so you now start thinking about uh as an entrepreneur how valuable is your network to you um when you don't have that, it suddenly becomes like you don't have a couple of fingers. So instead of instead of ten, you only have eight. What happens then? Um, so so we we become that sort of friends and family network of these founders. And so we invest capital at pre-seed stage. We love investing right alongside the formation of the company. Mm. Um, about half the companies we incorporated with our portfolio founders. Um, and so that's the the earliest stage um, we would go is when founders are ready to jump in. Um, and then with that comes immigration support. We have a structure whereby we have an R&D lab where if the companies are not progressed enough, we can we can hire these innovators at that R&D lab to do mm -hmm. the R&D. And, and when there's enough progress, um, they can transition to the company that they started. Um, or we help them structure their company in a way that they don't have to do all the legal finding, right? There's no ROI on them spending hours and days and weeks figuring out immigration. We can do it for them. Uh, we added an immigration law firm as partners in the fund because that's so okay. core to hmm. us. Uh, so I would I, I can say we are the only venture fund with immigration attorneys as partners. Um, and then the third thing we discovered where it makes a significant difference is access to customers and investors. So those are the those are the three things we do: invest capital, take over immigration, and provide access to customers and investors. Very interesting. Is uh, are most of your startups you're backing are they already here in the U.S. or they're outside the U.S. wanting to come here and you're facilitating that? Or great question. Most of them are here. So so really, what we're looking for is the immigrant ethos, right? So if you look at the scope of what we would invest in is at least one of the founders or co-founders was either born outside the US or their parents were born outside the US. So you know the typical definition of an immigrant. Um, we're not trying to go out and source. I mean, the population of immigrants in the US is so large. And it's disproportionately more entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. right? So we have a huge opportunity right here within the U.S., and that's what we're we're looking to tap first before we look at global um, mm. borderless entrepreneurship. And is, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a very uh, noble cause and everything, but is there also a uh, kind of an arbitrage opportunity? Maybe you're able to get either better deals that you otherwise could get, or great deals at a better price, perhaps? Like, is there sort of a, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm asking? It's a, it's a phenomenal business to invest in immigrants. Let me just put it that way, right? It's a pure play capitalistic approach. Um, and the, the, the philosophy that we have taken is not to use the arbitrage as a means to get more equity or better price, but as a means to win the most aggressive deals that we want to invest in, right? So you, you think about like the, the most talented founder will always have yeah. options to take capital from the people they want to take capital from. And so as a new fund, 
what we have to ask ourselves is why should somebody take our capital over more established brand names? And the answer to that is because we solve for their time. Any founder who optimizes for their time is more likely to choose as their investors, investors who bring more than capital. And it's not just about their brand. It's not just about uh, what they've done in the past. It's about what are they going to do for this company? When we were building um, our previous startup, we took money at less favorable terms from firms like Andreessen Horowitz and First Short Capital because of the resources they brought to the table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so think of our approach as, or the value add as a winning strategy versus getting better economic strategy. The better economics come from the stage at which we invest. So the, I mentioned, we like to invest super early and our philosophy is that by going really, really early, we're taking incrementally higher risk, but we're getting much better price by going early. Yeah. And if, we're picking the right founders, then the risk reward ratio is in our favor because we can make investments at a fourth of the valuation of where a seed investment would happen, right? But we're maybe taking 10, 20% more risk. So yeah. odds work out in our favor because we're, we're, we're now um, backing 4x more companies compared to if we were doing the same investment for the same risk profile at seed stage. Are you seeing... Patterns, uh, before the call, you mentioned you've got about 30 companies already, which is impressive. Are you seeing uh, clustering? Is it a lot of Southeast Asian or is it fairly, uh, you know, dispersed? Diaspora? Yeah, so we've made we've made 40 something investments now. I mentioned 30 plus as that's where clusters start emerging. Um, mm-hmm. The But those clusters are more clusters in terms of technology, industries, types of problems being solved, less about... Um, Origins. Mm-hmm. So we have we have portfolio founders from twenty something countries in our portfolio. All six inhabited continents covered, um, and you know, all the way from people on eleven different kinds of visas or green cards to who've now become American citizens. Uh, so it's a very diverse group. About thirty eight forty percent of our portfolio companies um, have a female leader, mm. a female co founder. Um, and, and, you know, that's a testament to, uh, there are clusters, but very diverse clusters. You know what I mean? Like you, you can find diversity in clusters. Um, and if you're open to diversity of one kind, all other kinds of diversities follow. So we're very mm. fortunate that we're working with a very diverse group. The clusters are more in the form of, for instance, we now have multiple companies in space tech. We have multiple companies mm. doing verticalized uh, enterprise software with machine learning, deep learning uh, solutions, multiple companies in the future of food space, future of workspace. So those are kind of the, mm. the category clusters that I was talking about. That's interesting. Very cool. Um, so let's talk about actually raising the fund. Uh, you're on fund number two, correct? How much, yes. uh, how much total uh, assets under management and how is that divided between the two funds? Yeah, about thirty million under management. Our first fund was a proof of concept, five million dollar fund. Um, that was raised primarily from individuals, high net worth individuals, successful entrepreneurs. Our second fund um, is a twenty million in core fund, and then we do SPVs for for follow ons and special opportunities and stuff. 
Um, this fund has a few family offices. We're very fortunate that uh, we're backed by some of the most iconic families in tech, retail, finance, and healthcare. Um, so so the, the, the bigger checks kind of make up about 50% of the fund. And then we have 94 successful operators and entrepreneurs who, mm. who make up the other 50% of the fund. And uh, we get to benefit from their mindshare and their networks. I mean, that's really been our MO in terms of the, the speed at which our portfolio founders can move. And I was mentioning the, the portfolio success aspect of the access to customers and, and investors. Mm-hmm. A lot of that has to do with how our community has contributed to that. It's not money and my native networks, right? It's, yeah. it's not our team's native network. It's the extended network of the entire community. Let's uh, no, we'll let's get back to that, uh, but let's start with that first fund. So, uh, raising the five million dollar fund, and I actually kind of vaguely remember when you're out raising it. I think you've got some good press and stuff like that. But maybe you know you had this proof of concept. How did you actually get out there and identify uh, high net worth folks to to put that fund together? Tell us about raising that fund. A lot of iteration, a um, lot of qualifying, learning from every meeting to understand which segment of investors would we have the most success with, right? And, and uh, when you're raising, you want to optimize your time. You, you don't want to take every meeting that comes your way because meetings are free, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's taking your time. So uh, what we, we started with discovery around different groups of investors, angels, family offices, um, and, and within them, different types, uh, location preferences. The, the one thing that worked, that we did a lot of and worked really well for us is once we secured an investor, we knew that they believe in us, they believe in, in what we're doing, and then it was about activating them to open up their networks. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how do you make it easy for someone who's now on your team to help you? And so, so that's where I, I would say our, our operator mentality really worked well is uh, we would go in and do the research on what their network is or could be. Yeah. And then go back to them with, you know, here's five names that we would love interest to. And everybody will, everybody wants when you find something that you really like and you're investing in, you want to take it to your friends. The, yeah. the, the problem part is most of, most of these folks are really busy. So what we can do as entrepreneurs is uh, make it easy for them to identify who are the five people I should take this to. Right. And so that's and what were you doing? Were you just really looking at their LinkedIn network or something or, or, or LinkedIn what? networks? Um, where have they, some of these people don't even maintain LinkedIn. So, yeah. but we know their background, we know which companies they worked at. So we, we did some, some analysis to figure out who, who would they have intersected paths with. Mm. And you know, so, so wherever LinkedIn is, is useful, you use that where LinkedIn is not useful. You use other means, you know, you have, um, crunch base through which you can figure out where where times may have intersected with other people. Um, there, there, other, there are other means. Um, yeah. So you just have to get creative, and and that's what you know founders are are really good at is uh, find creative means to get the get the information that you need to get yeah. to your end goal. Uh, you can skip this question, but who is the first? 
person to to say yes to you on that first fund because I think that's always interesting, right? Or it's it's a it's a yes, and we distinctly remember the meeting at which we got the first three commits together. So the first few people we went out to were people who we had worked with or for who knew what we can do, right? So mm-hmm. so uh, it, these are not cold emails. Yeah, and so the first three commits were. Um, two folks that we had worked with, Osman Rashid and um, David Strauss, uh, who were at No. Osman was the founder of No. David was the VP of uh, products. And um, Shamik Mehta, who is my partner's dad, who refused to invest in my partner's startup because his co-founder wasn't full-time yet. But when we told him about what we're doing with Unshackled, he, he committed instantaneously because he's been angel investing now for 20 something years. Okay. And he's seen so many of these opportunities where he wants to invest, but the founders are not full time. They're dealing with their visas or something, or he invests and they spend too much time dealing with immigration. So anyhow, yeah. those three in, in one meeting room at Osman's office in Mountain View on a Saturday morning was our first uh, 500K commit. The first unknown person to commit, unknown to us prior to starting in Shackle, was Brad Feld. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was from a cold email to, to Brad because, um, you know, saw that he cares about immigration. He cares about entrepreneurs. Um, wrote, him, wrote him a note about what we're doing. And he's like, I've been trying to solve this for a while. I, I've tried so many different approaches or backed so many different approaches. Uh, what you're saying makes a ton of sense. I mean. Um, so that was our, our uh, and from there, it just it was hustle. Did that open up a lot of uh, either more doors or more yeses? Because he's obviously pretty high profile. Oh, yeah. Brad was great. Um, you know, he, he made a number of intros for us. And, and uh, Brad's one of those uh, people, if you make it tangible for him, um, again, recognizing that he's very busy. So yeah. we have to make it easy for him. We gave him a list of I don't know, 20, 25 names. And he went through it in I don't know, 10 minutes and said, okay, here's the, here's the intros that I can make. These are people I think will resonate with what you guys are doing. And, um, you know, what I mentioned before, you, you keep following the chain of notes and it just kept working for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. And so that first fund, 5 million, how, two questions. How long did it take to raise that? And then how quickly did you deploy it and start thinking about number two? I think we did our first close in August. So the to we started fundraising in June. So June, July, August to get to first close. Um, and then we did another close in December, which was to get to our target. Our original, original target was three and a half. Um, and so we got there in December. Um, from there, we started getting some inbound uh, interest. So uh, we got oversubscribed. And then at five, we, we finally said, okay, this is a, we don't want to raise more than more than five at this time. So I think we called it close, final closed in February. Um, and the, you know, the one good thing at that time was until December, we weren't actively investing. So we were hundred percent just fundraising, which is not a luxury we can have anymore because now we're, we're managing uh, funds. So we can only yeah. be part-time fundraising. Um, we invested that between 2015, 16, and first half of 17. So two mm-hmm. and a half years um, to invest that, which obviously was a function of uh, smaller checks, 
and um, deal flow not at a volume at which we're seeing now, right? We were we were a new fund, um, yeah. so it, it takes time to build all those all that machinery. So yeah, middle of 2017 is when we activated the second fund. And okay, great. Um, how did that? So maybe let's talk about that. How did that change? What were your tactics or approaches? You had a, a portfolio, probably not any exits, or or maybe some had raised further rounds, but you know, how do you, I guess, two part question. How do you know it's time to go raise that next fund where you're sort of ready? And then what was the a pro- process or approach? Yeah, I, I would say I would equate that to very much the first fund being a pre-seed where the goal of that first one was to prove key hypotheses, right? Yeah. So if you, if you look at it from a fund perspective, the hypotheses were one that we can attract, uh, we can build a pipeline of high quality entrepreneurs. Number two, that we can build a process to identify the right companies and founders to invest in. And number three, if we want to invest in something, they're going to take our money, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. we're, selling, we're selling money, which is a commodity. So why, why will you still have to prove as a new fund that when you want to invest in a company, they're going to take your money? Yeah. And so, so those are the three things that we really focused on proving and took that into our second fund, which you can call the seed fund, where you're now actually building the full-fledged product. So, you know, our team grew with the second fund. Um, you're absolutely right. There was there were no exits. There was only directional proof in terms of the quality of entrepreneurs that we've mm-hmm. attracted. What has happened with those companies in terms of downstream investing? Um, to be honest, most of those fund one companies are now becoming recognizable names, mm. right? Because it just takes time to build companies. Um, it, not, nothing happens overnight. So yeah. when you're investing at um, when you're investing alongside founders when they're just starting out, you're adding another year, year and a half to that typical seed to exit journey, right? Um, and so our, our story going into fund two was, here's what we plan to do. Here were the key hypotheses that we proved. Here's the big opportunity. We can corner this entire market of immigrant founders because we have a, a value proposition unlike anybody else. We're going to stay disciplined. So discipline was a big part of um, that story that LPs looked at is, are you chasing shiny objects or, are you, or do you have a philosophy of staying disciplined to your strategy? Um, and that played a big role. We, you know, a lot of LPs after committing told us that one of the things that impressed them a lot was the discipline with which we were operating. Um, so, so. And define that for a minute. Does that just mean staying obviously true to the core thesis of immigrants, but same, same check size or, you know, stage, uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, valuation expectations. Cause when we, when we started fund one, we said, because we had already done customer discovery with, with entrepreneurs, we had a decent understanding of the range of check sizes, the range of valuations in which our investment would work. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> as a starting point, right? So, so going into fund two, we, we were able to say, here's where, this is the range we started with. Here's what we've learned. And in keeping with market expectations, because valuation ranges change as markets are going up or down, right? Mm-hmm. How, how hot the start of investing scene is. And so the discipline was more about, these guys said they would invest in immigrant founded companies. Are they doing that? Yeah. Right. So it's not, it's not to, 
when you are a big fund, you have the luxury of becoming opportunistic, right? Mm. So, so we are now being told by a number of our LPs, if you see a great opportunity, why not do it? Because it's coming to you because of this machine, this pipeline that you've built, the brand that you've built. And yep. they are probably right. But when you're, when you're a focused company, just like with startups, that what we say is when you're building something new, you got to stay focused to the absolute sweet spot type of customer. So we, the discipline part of it was, are we investing in customers, our customers being founders, who hit the sweet spot of our strategy. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if we were diverging from that too much, we would not, we would, we could be called a more generalistic investor, right? So uh, we didn't know how much LPs weighed that, but mm. we were doing it just because we were very focused on executing the right way. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is, and, and you know, I, I, I now understand why LPs put weightage on it because there are, about a thousand other venture funds, right? So why would why are we so lucky that a founder would take our money if we don't have a unique proposition for them? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. You 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 have to ask yourself that question, and so I think a lot of that operator background, um, starting companies and looking at how do we focus truly on our sweet spot customer helped us a lot maintain that discipline. Yeah. Good. And you added family offices to the mix. How did you identify a list or the right family offices and get in with them? Any tips or approaches? Um, primarily intros from LPs from fund one. Um, okay. We, you know, some of the, some of the intros actually happened when we were raising for the first fund. Um, obviously we were too small for them at the time. And so we kept building the relationship. Um, and as we were executing on fund one, we got intros to certain people, not because of their investments, but because of what they do. So, you mm-hmm. know, if you're the CEO of a healthcare company, we sought an intro to them to ask them a question specific to an investment we were about to make, right? That led us to to building a relationship with them, which then led to, oh, you're raising your next fund. I'm very interested in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, so a lot of those relationships, some of those relationships came because purely investment intros. Some of those relationships came because of um, just operating intros. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Did you have to, what's the, the fee structure on your funds? And did you have to do any special terms on that first fund or structure it differently? No, uh, we, being a small fund, we we didn't do fees because fees won't matter on a on a five million dollar yeah. fund. Instead, we um, agreed with our LPs on an operating budget mm. to run the fund, um, typical carry, and then in fund two, it's it's your typical fee and carry structure. And we, okay. we kept mm-hmm. we we kept economics consistent across the board our LPs because we didn't want to get into that um, ask of. Uh, some people want preferential terms and some don't or, you know, it just yeah. creates too much management. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, good. Any, uh, th- where are you at in deploying fund number two? If you can share that, like, uh, and when do you start yeah, we're, about number three? We're about 55% deployed. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're thinking about three, obviously, because, 
Um, that's the that's the natural continuum. Um, I can't say when we're going to be raising SEC mm-hmm. regulations, and and our attorneys aren't going to like that. So, uh, but it you know as we're deploying, we're seeing the strategy or the uh, the assumptions that we made going into fund two working out as we expected. The deal flow continues to grow. We're now mm-hmm. seeing uh, 1,600 companies a year. Uh, qualified opportunities a year. So to keep that pace, um, the the one thing that's significantly changed over the last year is we're now seeing inbound and interest from not just the rising star entrepreneurs, but also known star entrepreneurs. Known hmm. stars being, you know, people that have built and exited companies before. And they're it's really interesting how that's playing out because they're saying we want to be affiliated with your brand because mm-hmm. we're we're immigrant founders and you know we know that this fund should succeed to create a lot more opportunities in founders like us yeah. so it, it's it's and and then the the interestingly the counter side of that is um, if if any of your leadership team is immigrants there's a tendency to hire immigrants. And so some of our infrastructure becomes really helpful as they are building teams. Because the one thing you'll consistently hear from second, third, fourth time entrepreneurs is building team is the number one priority. And so what they look at is your immigration uh, backbone can help us scale significantly faster when when it comes to recruiting teams. Because we spent a lot of time on immigration when we were building our first company with employees. So that's an unintended sort of benefit of our know-how and and the team that we have on immigration um, because of which we're getting access to these um, very successful people starting their next few companies. So as we, as we look ahead, we think that mix will continue to grow in mm-hmm. between, you know, more of a balance between rising stars and non-stars. That's interesting. Yeah. 1,500 companies a year, that's healthy deal flow. Do you have any frameworks or other means of for assessing and filtering through that many deals? Yeah, um, a lot of credit to our team. So Maria and Lucas um, on our team are truly the architects of the pipeline management system that, that we've built. Um, we you know, being operators, we keep every every few months we revisit how we're spending our time, and is it going? Is it doing justice to things that we should be spending most of our time on? So we we keep a healthy amount of our time for portfolio service. Mm-hmm. So once we that's the post investment uh, working with the portfolio time, and and then the the rest of the time on on sourcing and and pipeline management or investing. The process allows us to move quickly from um, at the front end of the funnel, from mm-hmm. uh, you know something coming in to qualifying it, and um, we've we've created a really fluent process, which we get a lot of credit from founders on how transparent our process is. So we published um, how we look at opportunities, and um, that helps the entrepreneurs know if they're a good fit for us, as well as what the process would look like. Uh, mm. So it's, 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 a, it's a quick process at the front end of the funnel, and then it goes into for the, for the absolutely qualified ones, which I would say is about 10 to 15% of everything that we see gets to uh, an hour 
or longer meeting uh, mm-hmm. with with um, at least three people on the team. But the one thing that we're very proud of that we've done despite the volume is everything that is referred to us or comes in cold is seen by at least two people on our team. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that 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 does two things. Number one, we welcome cold reach. So we've we've our form is on our website. You can go there, click pitch us, and and send us the information. It's it's more about the founders and a brief overview of the space and idea that they're working on, which allows our team. Uh, we're six people on the team now. It allows all of us to see that information every time that form comes in, goes into Airtable hits all of our emails. So we have a quick skim of everything that's coming in. And then at least two people on the team are going to spend dedicated time to go through all that, Mm -hmm. qualify if we should move this to a meeting or not. That first meeting is always a video call. It's 20 to 30 minutes, very respectful of founders time. We don't want them to just commute around or travel to to meet with us. Um, And that that meeting is about identifying founder upside, right? Mm -hmm. The first video call is... It's less about the idea. It's more about how excited are we about this team, mm. right? And, and so after that is when we start seeking founders time. The one, you know, the, the other part of it is we're just really sensitive about taking founders time. So before we take a long meeting, we do a lot of research um, in the background. So two, um, two of our analysts are phenomenal at doing deep dives. And uh, we have student fellows at universities who help with, mm. with these deep dives. We don't like going into meetings and, and taking half the meeting for the founder to explain to us what's already in their deck or what <laughs> we can find on internet, right? That's, that's not good use of anybody's time. So this whole process, um, the reason it works at high volume is because we keep refining it and fine tuning it almost like a sales playbook at a, at a growth stage company, right? Sure. See how oiled that is. That's how that's how our pipeline process works. Yeah, interesting. And uh, I have to ask this: Have you actually put money into one that came cold through the website, or has most been referred, or some some blend? Oh, uh, many. I mean, our very first investment, Pluto Shift, was cold outreach. Um, many of our investments are just pure cold uh, coming in. In fact, what happens is we will get something cold through the website and then the founders find out oh we know someone in common and then they're going to ask them to send a note um and so we we, mm. we get that um because now the network has become very very large so yeah. it's it's easier for most founders to find someone in common um in the early days it wasn't that large and so but still we 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 get a lot of uh, inbound and we love colds i mean you know, referrals are great, but referrals as a means of, let me put it this way. Referrals are great to get insights, but yeah. not as a, as a means to filter or mm. disqualify someone just because they didn't come through a referral. So the way we use a referral is after we get to a point where we're now doing diligence, that's when we look at, oh, we know all these people in common. Let's get in touch with them. And, you know, instead of just relying on the referral checks or uh, reference calls that founders provide, we'll ping all these people um, ourselves. And so um, that that works more as an insight generating process versus a qualifying process. Mm, Yeah. My my theory, and this is just 
has no basis in anything really, but as, as, as venture funds grow larger and older, they tend to use the referrals more as the filter, right? Like you see this like with newer funds, sometimes they welcome more cold email, but you think you can continue to accept and filter and process cold Cold. We will. Yeah. We we have to. You have to recognize your customer. Um, you know, I, I mentioned a, a lot of immigrants are new to the country, right? Yeah. They don't have the network. Um, coincidentally, there's a there's a very similar sentiment. So I, I've been spending a lot of time in the Midwest. Um, I've been spending some time with veteran entrepreneurship groups. And I hear a, a, a lot of, they love what we're doing because they say, you know, we're we're like that immigrant for yeah. some for Silicon Valley because we don't have those networks. So yeah. how do we go about it? And they really respect that uh, we we don't care who is referring you. Uh, we actually underweigh the 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 value of the referral itself. We yeah. overweigh what we're learning from the founders themselves. Mm. So we yeah. have to keep looking at um, we have to look at everything that comes inbound, and yeah. and it's a show of. Uh, it, it's a show of founders' confidence too, right? It it takes a it takes confidence to put yourself in somebody's inbox with, here's an idea that I'm working on, and you know most people will say, like, this is a BS idea, or <laughs> why are you sure. wasting your time on this? So it takes confidence to put yourself out like that, and we respect that about founders. A couple quick quick answer questions: uh, typical check size, lead or follow. And uh, any patterns in priced round or, or notes or safes? Like, what's the structure look like? We love to lead. We so when there's an opportunity, ninety uh, percent of the times we have led the pre-seed rounds. The check sizes have been between two hundred and four hundred k as our initial investment, and then we keep reserves for follow-ons. Um, what was your last question? Safe versus not safe? That totally depends on the structure. So we have templatized everything. So we've templatized preferred stock uh, and we've done that with founders at times because they wanted a price round. Um, our, you know, for, for speed of execution, a safe with side letter works really, really well. Interesting. Great. Um, something you mentioned maybe 15, 20 minutes ago, you said the second fund, you've got 20 million plus you do SPVs. So is that maybe tell us what that means and why, and is that just sort of be opportunistic when you see stuff or, or what's the SPV? It's mostly the SPVs are, are just follow on rounds in our portfolio companies, right? So, okay. so uh, as, as companies raise series A, B rounds, um, we, we tend to not invest from the fund because we're not keeping reserves for those larger rounds. Uh, so in those cases, we go to our LPs and we say, here's a round being led by Investor X in a company mm -hmm. that's doing this, and we have this much of an allocation. So one of the one of the very important things to note here is our, our portfolio founders um, really recognize the relationship that we've built with them, the trust relationship, and we're really fortunate much they um, they fight uh, for our, for us to give us an allocation, so it's it's one of the added benefits that we bring to our LPs is giving them direct access into these uh, series A B rounds for for them to participate through the SPV. Okay, all right, we're almost done. This is great. I'll let you get back to it because you've got thirty forty companies to attend to. 
What, uh, that's right. What's the hardest part about sort of being on this fund too as, and, and maybe it's that you've got 30, 40 people to keep happy now, you know, what's the hardest part? Oh, that's the fun part. I mean, you know, personally, I love spending my, if I had a choice, I would only spend time with entrepreneurs. Um, the, the hard part I, I would say is, or at least it was the recognition that as an entrepreneur, I controlled every micro decision of the company as, as the builders of Unshackled, um, we control every decision that we make about, um, Unshackled. But when you're an investor, you control very few decisions, right? So you have to recognize what your place in the journey of the company is mm. and, and understand uh, we've, we're fortunate that we have the understanding as operators and founders ourselves of what the founders are going through, right? So, so be available as a sounding board, be available when they want to talk to you, be available when they ask for advice, but, mm -hmm. but not, try to interfere because that's mm -hmm. not the place of an investor. <laughs> right. And, and, um, that was a, that was, that was a process that took uh, a, a few months to accept when we started, um, how our role has to be different. But other than that, it's, you know, the, the, the hard part is simply, um, when you have this portfolio, you know, you recognize that it's a, uh, it's a gritty, journey for the founders <laughs> and sometimes you hear stories of how uh, some of these journeys are being made harder by uh, by other people and and uh, that really sucks mm -hmm. uh, but but we're we're very fortunate that our portfolio founders trust us to bring those issues to us and and we can find ways to help them through it um, I, I I don't think there's much to say about hard parts of my job. It's really the, the best job in the world. Your, your hard part is when your kid comes in second and doesn't win the trophy, just a, a medal for cricket or something? It's, I, I, if you're second, well, if you're second out of, I don't know, whatever, 100 or so, uh, you know, participants, then, okay, you get your silver, that's fine. But if you're, if you're second out of three, uh, don't bring, don't bring them. I, I, bring I, I'm simply saying that from a perspective of just the competitive spirit, right? So, yeah. um, I, I grew up in a very competitive society. When you're growing up with a billion people around you in India, you, you better be competitive because you're going to have to, to, uh, kill your feet. And so, um, <laughs> I, I came, I come with, with that kind of mindset. I think sometimes when you, when you give medals and trophies and certificates for just being there, Sure. It dilutes the value of achievement for those who did achieve, and it it reduces the competitive spirit. So that's that's yeah. uh, that's a side comment. That's just yeah. too much of a competitive animal. In me. I agree. Um, very good. All right. If people want to learn more, it's unshackled.vc or .co. Un unshackledvc.com. Unshackledvc.com. Okay. Yep. Um, and we were very transparent with what we do, how we do it. So. Uh, there's a lot of content on our website about what we are most likely to invest in, what the process would look like. And the call for entrepreneurs simply would be just reach out. There's, we have never told anyone that it's too early for us. So I, I know founders hear that from VCs a lot and they think they should wait and prove something. Don't do that with us. We're much more likely to invest the earlier you are than as it gets late. So reach out.
One last question. How do you identify that, especially when you're doing, like you mentioned, you're, you're investing in companies even before they're incorporated as a company. So what is it you're, you know, the common pattern that you're seeing these guys are good to invest in when there's not product or traction or yeah. even a company? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's like uh, going to the draft room, right? So uh, you're looking for players with the highest upside. It's, it's very similar. We're looking for founders who represent the highest upside. Um, and, and some of the characteristics that go into identifying that, I'm not saying this is the only set, but some of the things that truly stand out is founders that are really curious. Um, mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're experts at something, but they're also very curious about things that they don't know yet. They're also very self-aware of what they don't know yet. They, they, they strive to learn things that they're not an expert at. Um, you know, there's a, there's a silent confidence um, about, about that. Um, so they're not insecure about what they don't know. They're confident of what they know. And, and they also know that they can learn what they don't know really quickly. Uh, people who are really inclusive um, and and are not trying to do everything themselves because you're gonna tap out of your own bandwidth and and so uh, people who recognize that um, people are good with making decisions with uh, with limited information right because that's mm-hmm. what founders are gonna have to do for years to come is make decisions with limited information um, so there's a lot of these you know great adversity muscle that gets talked about all the time. Um, because you will hit adversity. Um, so we look for a lot of these soft aspects. Um, the charisma, which is, which is uh, charisma is not just about, um, you know, influence, but it's about being able to communicate, for example, really complex topics in simple terms, mm-hmm. right? Now that's, that's charismatic. You, you can, you can communicate, you're building satellites and uh, telecom networks and whatnot, but you can communicate that in simple terms to people who don't understand satellites or telecom networks in as much detail. That's a, that's charismatic. So a lot of those soft components go into identifying that upside. And then as we get deeper into the process, we then start looking at how does this relate to what you're doing now, right? Mm-hmm. How does your expertise make you the best person to execute on what you're looking to do and if you're successful, does that create a big enough of an opportunity to be a venture-backed company? But a lot of those uh, attributes are fairly soft. So are you determining this through the call and meeting? I mean, because you can't put that in a form so much, right? No, <laughs> really? no. This is, this is interpersonal. Exactly mm-hmm. right. So, uh, and a lot of what, what we've learned is to ask the right questions to, and the question, it's not the answer that really informs you. It's the, it's how it's answered that informs mm. you. So it's still a judgment call. And I, I, I won't comment that we have now become, you know, the best at it. We're still learning, but mm. the, the beauty of our team is that there's a lot of different perspectives and personalities. So if, if I am underweighing something, someone else on the team is going to check me on that. Um, if I'm overthinking something, someone on the team will, will check me on that. So I would say I'm the weakest link on the team. So everybody else, if you, if you get to meet the rest of the team, they are, they're just phenomenal people, really, really good at what they do. Um, so it, you know, as, as the weakest link, I would say we're doing really good work in identifying, um, identifying these soft skills, uh, or soft attributes. 
but you can, you're, you're spot on. You can do that through a form or just one quick meeting, right? It, it takes time. And that's why most of our investments happen with at least three interactions, mm -hmm. um, yeah. sometimes four interactions with the team. My last question, I promise, then I'll let you go. Do you have one favorite question you like to ask in, to sort of identify and pull some of these soft attributes out? Well, I, I don't know how much of a pull, but I really like to get into how the founders are thinking of the future by asking something like, something like if you are successful, all the plans that you laid out work out, what does the world look like? In mm. 10, 15, 20 years, whatever time it takes. But if you're successful, what does the world look like? And mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating to hear that from really visionary founders, how they think, even mm. if they're working on something very boring, you know, IT infrastructure type of under the hood thing, but they can really lay out for you what they are doing will make a meaningful change in the world. And it's just fascinating to, to hear and learn from. Mm. That's a great question. All right, my friend, this is fantastic. Uh, UncheckledVC.com. Check it out. Learn more. Um, thanks so much. We'll catch you after your next fund, and we'll see how the thesis or the theme has changed at that point. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Nathan. Over and out. All right. Bye.